Well, we are back in uh, our series on Romans, in Romans chapter 8. Now, we have not been there uh, for the past month, and so some of you may have forgotten that. That's okay. You'll be reminded today. Um, and so we're in Romans 8, so I want to invite everyone to open up their Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 5 to 11. Now, if you do not have a Bible, then there's a, a black one like this under a chair near you, and we will be on page 944 in the Black Bibles. And you're going to find it very, very helpful to have a copy of the Bible open to Romans 8 this morning, especially if you're, if you're new to our church, because we, we really do try to read a portion of the Bible to you, not too much, not too little, and then we try to explain faithfully and responsibly what we just read to you. And so if you have a copy in front of you, you find it incredibly helpful. But before we get to the reading of the Scripture, I do have an illustration and introduction to give you, because this is a very, I feel like, very important, very important passage in this very important chapter of Romans chapter 8. And so... Um, the opening illustration is this. At the end of the 17th century, in the beginning of the 18th century, uh, a man named Antonin or Antonio Stradivari made violins. And as many of you know, he did not make just any old violin. Right? The Stradivarius is widely considered to be the premier violin, even now, uh, with sound quality of the utmost excellence. And as you can imagine, over the centuries, that violin makers and even just violin and music enthusiasts have wanted to know, what did he do to these violins to make them so special? Because they're clearly special, and many consider them unmatched, unrivaled. And so, what did he do? Well, if you're familiar with these violins, you know that no one really knows. It's a mystery. There are lots of theories, and some of the theories involve things like Maybe where did he get his wood? You know, did the wood come from northern Croatia, where harsh winter after harsh winter slowed the tree growth down to increase the density of the wood? Or did the, uh, the cold snap, known as the Little Ice Age, did that work to slow the growth of the trees slow that, so that the wood was even more dense than other wood? Did Stradivari use special chemicals to treat and soak the wood? You know, researchers have suggested he soaked the violins uh, in everything from water, to borax, to potassium, to sodium, to even honey and egg whites. Some researchers suggest the wood uh, of the Stradivarius violins show signs of decay, but just enough decay so that uh, the pores in the wood have been affected, creating a different resonance with the wood that had not decayed at all. But we don't know. You see, the, the jury's still out on what makes these violins so special. No one knows, but what we do know Well, what we think we know is that whatever it is, that it does involve the the density of the wood, the the very makeup of the wood. There was something that happened, some outside agent that changed really the composition of the wood used to make these violins that resulted in something special, something magnificent, something extraordinary. Now, I tell you that because what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 is that when you look at at the world, when you look at people, and you separate people into the most fundamental groups according to the Bible, you separate people who are followers of Jesus and who are not. What the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 
is that the fundamental agent of change that makes the difference is the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's presence. Thus, uh, John Stott, a theologian, once said, Thus the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. And so we've been in this series in Romans 6, 7, and 8 talking about life in the Spirit. And we started out looking at Romans 6, verse 4, which speaks about how followers of Jesus can walk in newness of life. And as we've talked about this, you've, you've nodded your heads and you've agreed, newness of life sounds great. And what the Apostle Paul says, that what makes the difference, what empowers us to walk in newness of life, is the Holy Spirit. And what many of people don't realize is that Romans chapter 8, in many ways, really is the premier chapter in the New Testament to teach us about the work of the Holy Spirit. It shows up here 20-some times in this chapter, making it uh, showing up here more than any other chapter in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at this absence and presence of the Holy Spirit in, in this passage, in Romans 8, verses 5 to 11. But before we do that, Romans 8 is not only this incredible chapter about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, it's also this incredible chapter about the follower of Jesus, incredible assurance and internal security in Christ. See, Romans chapter 8, it begins with verse 1. And you remember this from last month and even from our assurance of pardon today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is an incredible verse, an incredible declaration of our assurance of, of security if you're in Christ. What it says is that if you are in Christ Jesus, that there is no condemnation from God for you. Not today, there will not be tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. That what it says is that that condemnation from God for you because of your sins, it no longer exists. It's done away with. It, it's gone for forever. An incredibly powerful assurance. No condemnation. And then Romans chapter 8 ends, so it begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. The last two verses of Romans 8 say this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the two bookends of this incredible chapter. It begins with the assurance of no condemnation. It ends with the security of no separation. Nothing, no, nothing can separate you. Now, the key phrase in Romans 8.1 and in Romans 8.39, the first verse and the last verse of the chapter, is in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul, in the midst of this chapter, this chapter is meant for those who are followers of Jesus to take away from it this just incredible certainty that I am approved, that I am accepted, that I'm loved. Next week we'll talk about I'm adopted. I am so secure, so safe in God's love for me because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. But here in our passage this morning, The Apostle Paul says, in the midst of that, all of that's true. 
but only if you're in Christ Jesus. And so he wants us to think about that. See, we live in in the most diverse city in America, and we know that on the one hand, we can categorize the millions of diverse Houstonians, all of our neighbors, into a seemingly endless list of criteria, right? You've got Democrat, Republican. We can categorize people based on ethnicity, first language, socioeconomic status, educational background, Longhorn or Aggie, uh, and the list goes on and on. But the Apostle Paul's point here in Romans 8 In this passage that I'm about to read to you, I don't want you to miss it, is that at its most basic level, there are really only two groups of people. There are those who are not followers of Jesus, he says, who are of the flesh, and those who are followers of Jesus, who are of the Spirit. So listen for that as we read together, or you follow along as I read Romans chapter 8, verse 5 to verse 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, this is the word of the Lord, and it's absolutely true, and it's given to us by God in love for our good. And so let's look. Let's look at the very first verse here in our passage, verse 5. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so let's, let's define some key terms here, okay? First, this word flesh. The word flesh does not mean our soft, muscular tissue uh, that that covers our bones. And maybe some of you are saying, well, speak for yourself, Richard. But flesh does does not mean our soft, muscular tissue around our bones. And it does not merely refer to our bodily instincts and appetites. The way the Apostle Paul is using it here in this passage is referring to a non Christian's fallen, sinful nature apart from salvation in Christ by faith. And then we have the word spirit with a capital S, and this refers to the Holy Spirit. And therefore, life in the spirit that a true follower of Jesus has through faith. So if you look at verse 5 again, Paul is setting out these two categories. Those of the flesh and those of the spirit. And and you can really see this uh, um, clearly if you look at the the very wooden translation of this verse and we'll look at that in the New American Standard, a different translation of what we normally use. But this reflects the fact that in the original Greek language, the verb live, it's not there. See, our text in the ESV in our translation says, those who live according to the flesh or those who live according to the spirit. But quite literally, it says, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh. And those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now, why is that important? The Apostle Paul, I think, is calling us to look at ourselves. 
He's calling us to look at our own hearts. He's not calling us to look at other people. He's not calling us to make those kind of judgments. And so we would be wise to look at our own hearts. And what he's saying, he's not saying, look and think about how you live. Although that can be important and that can tell the truth, but also it can be misleading. What he's saying is, look deeper than that. Not who live according to the flesh, but who are according to the flesh. To look at who you are at a heart level. He's calling us, he's saying we're separating the two groups, the flesh and the spirit, based on, not based on merely what we do or even how we live, but it's much deeper than that. It's much deeper than lifestyles and habits. Paul is saying that it has to do with who we are. He's saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are of the spirit. And what that means is that your fundamental orientation to life and to God, and to his glory, and to his word, and to the things of God, is diametrically opposed to someone who is of the flesh. And their orientation to life, and to God, and to things of God, and to God's word, and even to God's people. So how do you know? How do you know if you are of the flesh or of the spirit? How do you know? Do you know? How do you know about yourself? I think in this chapter of assurance and security, the Apostle Paul is asking us to take a look at our hearts. And what he says is that we know based on the absence of the Spirit or the presence of the Spirit. And those are the two headings, the two main points for us this morning. The absence of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit. So let's first look at the absence of the Spirit. So what is true of people who do not have saving faith in Jesus and who therefore do not have the Holy Spirit living within them? I want you to notice, okay, if you look, look at your text you're holding, the Apostle Paul does not give us, he does not give us a list of horrible sins and crimes. He doesn't tell us that. He doesn't even give us a list of specific sins at all. He doesn't say, hey, look at these things, and if you do these things, guess what? That means you're of the flesh, you're a bad person, not of the Spirit. He doesn't tell us that at all. He doesn't tell us to look at our religious involvement and participation, how often we come to church. He doesn't tell us to look at our theological beliefs that we claim to hold. Now, those can be very important, and it matters what we believe, but he doesn't tell us to look there. He doesn't tell us to look at our conduct at all. What does he say look at? He tells us to look at what only we can look at about ourselves, and that is our hearts. That is our our disposition towards God and the things of God. And he calls it our mindset. Over and over again, he talks about your mindset or where your mind is set. And it has to do with our thinking, yes, but more than our thinking, it has to do with who we are, our hearts, our our orientation to life. And so look at verse 5 again. For those who live or who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. See, the Apostle Paul says there's a common mindset among people who are not followers of Jesus. And he describes this mindset or orientation towards life as setting their minds on things of the flesh. But he doesn't give us a list. And so what does that mean? Well, the first thing he says, he says death is a key here. Look at verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. It's death. Now, what does the Apostle Paul mean by death? Well, there's a couple of options. And 
I'll give you what it could be and what I think it is. While it's true that the Bible teaches us that if we die in the guilt of our sins, and we all know that we're sinners, just a matter of whether you believe you're a big sinner or a little sinner, but we all know that we're sinners. No one thinks they're perfect. You know, we know that. That's well established. I've never talked to anyone who would disagree with that statement. And what the Bible says is that if we die in the guilt of our sins, without the salvation and the forgiveness, the grace that God offers through Jesus, through faith in him, that we'll suffer the consequences of eternal death. As in separation from God's love and mercy and goodness for all eternity in hell. But if you look at verse 6, that it says, to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now. Not, not will be, but is. And so I, I think what Paul's saying here is that the mind set on the flesh yeah, it will be spiritual. It will be spiritual death and unresponsiveness to the things of God here in this life. A type of death towards the things of God, unresponsiveness, right? Because a dead person can't respond. And so, what what does that mean? Well, we see in verse seven, it means being hostile to God. Look at verse seven. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now, for me, see, this is becoming a lot clearer. See what Paul's saying here, that every person who's not a true follower of Jesus, they'll have a common mindset that is hostile to God. But here's the thing, hostility to God does not always look like an outburst of anger and someone shaking their fist at God about how they're so angry and they they hate God. In fact, there are many true followers of Jesus who go through times when they are shaking their fist at God, questioning what he's up to, questioning why some, why some pain and loss and hurt is present in their lives. I mean, even the followers of Jesus get angry with God during the intense times of suffering, tragedy, and loss. And so what does it look like then? What does it look like to live in hostility towards God, to have this hostile mindset? See, friends, I, what I want to propose to you is it looks a lot more ordinary. It looks a lot more common. It's a lot more subtle. It's something you can have, even though you're here in the room like this week after week after week. See, I think it means that you never think about your life, your values, your priorities, your hopes and your dreams from the standpoint of God's glory. See, I think it means you live your life and you make your decisions really as if God practically, functionally is your enemy. As if he's out to get you or to take from you and that you can't trust him. Well, what does that look like? Well, let's look at the next verse, or more of verse 7, where it says it looks like ignoring or rejecting God's word, the Bible. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot so you see, the mind set on the flesh, it rejects God and his word that's given to us in love for our good. And it does this by simply living however we want to live without any real concern or regard for God and his word. You see, Paul's describing the person who goes through life making decisions, spending money, leading their family, setting goals, scheduling their time, making plans to either go against what God's Word says or just simply doesn't care to find out what it says. This mindset, this orientation to life says, God, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to do things my way. I, I really don't care what you and what your Word says. How can I even know it's true? It's written so long ago, there's so many different translations. Even this pastor's using different translations. And so, I don't even, 
I'm going to live my life how I want to live. I don't really care what your word says. I don't care to find out. Or I want to live my life how I want to live it, even though I know your word tells me to do just the opposite. It's the mindset, it's the orientation of life that says, I have my plans. I have my plans. And they seem right to me. They make sense to me. And you can do that. You can do that and be quite quite the moral person. You can do that and be quite the religious person, at least outwardly. But this is serious because what the Apostle Paul says in verse 8 is that if you do this, you cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, this does not mean that people who are non-Christians are bad, immoral people. Not at all. In fact, almost every person who I know personally who's not a Christian, they are an incredibly good, moral, kind, loving person. But what the Bible says, they cannot please God. Well, why can you not please God? I mean, if you're doing some of the right things, you're not doing some of those bad things, why can't you please God? Well, Jesus was essentially asked this in the New Testament in Matthew 22. He was asked to sum up God's law. What does God require? What pleases God? And Jesus in Matthew 22 verse 37 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That's why you can't please God. Because he always looks at the orientation of our hearts. Looks at what Paul says here, what our minds are set on. Who we are. So it stands to reason then that someone who's hostile to God and his word as they go about their daily lives doing exactly what they want to do without concern for God, his glory, and his word, they cannot please him. You see, no one who lives to please themselves can live to please God at the same time. Now, gosh, that's harsh. But remember, this is found right in the middle of this incredible chapter about the assurance and the security that a follower of Jesus has in the gospel. No condemnation, no separation. And what Paul says is that it would be cruel of him to give us this incredible chapter and yet not make it very clear that this, these promises are not for every single person. That they're only for those who are in Christ. And so he says, come to Christ. Now, that's what absence of the Spirit looks like. Well, what about the second? What does the presence of the Spirit look like? Well, look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You see, the Apostle Paul here, kind of embedded in verses 9, 10, and 11, are these questions. You see, if, if, if. Paul's inviting us all to evaluate our own hearts and lives. Do we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us? And the logic of verse 9, I think, is simple enough. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, that means you belong to Jesus. If you do not have the Holy Spirit living within you, you do not belong to Jesus. That all followers of Jesus have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, living in them, taking up residence in them. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit has moved in. Moving in is very different from visiting. See, we have visitors come over all the time. In fact, honestly, I mean, many of you know me, so this is true. 
all of you are invited over to my house at different times, and, and, but, but you're all welcome to come visit. But you can't move in. You can't stay. Right? Because if you move in, what does that do? That changes things. If you take up residence, that changes things. Some of you know that. Some of you, have, you know, you've had somebody who's a great friend, and all of a sudden they become a roommate, and they become less than a great friend. You know, some of you love, you know, some of you love extended family members, and they have to move in, and all of a sudden it's, you know, things used to be great between us, but they, now things are different. Because when the Holy Spirit moves in, takes up permanent residence, it changes things. Listen to this quote from Pastor Ray Ortland Jr. Does the Holy Spirit live within you? People indwelt by the Holy Spirit still have problems. They still sin. They still make mistakes and have to offer apologies. They still suffer and weep and get sick and die like everyone else. But if God has given you his spirit, you find within yourself a deepening spiritual mentality. You find that your former hostility toward God is melting into tenderness toward God. Once you were defensive, now you are surrendered. Once you thought God would ruin your life, now you know that God is your only happiness. You are now alive to God. You still struggle, you still waver, you still sin, but God is marking you as his own. See, the presence of the Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus, it makes a difference. And it impacts both our present now and it impacts our future and how we think about both and how we live into both. And so our present, look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, verse 10 is a very difficult verse to understand and and, and to exegete and to explain. Um, And theologians and scholars disagree about what exactly is meant by death and by life here. But here's what I think we can safely and responsibly take away from it. For the follower of Jesus, the spirit of Christ, that is the Holy Spirit, dwells within us. And although our physical, mortal bodies are dying like everyone else, I know that's morbid to think about, but somebody did once say that whenever, as soon as you take your first breath, you've actually taken one of your last because of how finite our days are. We don't like to think about that, but sometimes it's really wise to stop and think about that. And what Paul says is that although our physical, mortal bodies are dying like everyone else, if you're in Christ... God has made us spiritually alive through the new birth of the Spirit. And this is not only true of some some special, super spiritual Christians, but it's true of all followers of Jesus. And this new birth of the Spirit has made us alive to things that we were dead to before. It's made us alive to God. I mean, look at 10. But But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. If you look back up earlier into verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. See, there's life, there's spiritual life, and this awakens us to God. You see, almost everyone in the world believes that God exists. Believe at least in an impersonal deity that exists. But what Paul's saying is that there's a difference between believing in an impersonal deity who exists somewhere, somehow, somewhere else, and in the reality of believing that, you, that, that, God, that the God of the Bible exists and that you can know him personally. 
You see, whenever you become a Christian, God becomes real to you. You know Him. You know that He knows you. See, before we were made alive by the Spirit, we would pray sometimes. Some of you remember this. We would pray before we were made alive by the Spirit. We weren't sure if our prayers ever left the room. We weren't sure who we were praying to. We weren't sure if the impersonal God even cared or if he was listening. However, once you're made alive by the Spirit, that all changed. And there's still so much you don't know about God and his ways, but he is more real to us now than life itself. And we know that God loves us. We know that he knows us. We know that he's watching over us. We know that we can trust him. And we can even particularly feel his closeness, his nearness during times of sickness, sorrow, and loss. We've been made alive to God. That this is true with the presence of the Spirit. We've also been made alive to God's word. Look back at verse 7. Remember, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But if you've been with us, you remember what the Apostle Paul said back in Romans 7. Romans 7, verse 22, he says, But for the follower of Jesus, who's been made alive by the Spirit, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Do you see the difference? It's a complete different orientation of your heart toward God's word. Now, does this mean that if you're a follower of Jesus, you always obey it? Of course not. You know, it mean, we've talked about that in Romans 7, about this struggle, the ongoing struggle with sin that followers of Jesus have. But it means that the Spirit's work in our lives has made us alive to the Bible in such a way that we are convinced that it is, in fact, absolutely true. And that it really is given to us in love for our good. And before we came to saving faith in Jesus, the Bible probably and maybe seemed strange and confusing and boring to us. But not now. Not now. Today, whenever we read the Bible and we hear the Bible taught, we know that it's God himself who's speaking to us. We, we find the Bible makes sense now. We find that the Bible's actually effective at changing our lives. And we want more of it. We find that the Bible has become most, both meaningful and incredibly attractive to us. We can't get enough of it. You see, the Spirit's presence in our lives makes us alive to God and the things of God in His Word, which impacts how we live now. But also, the presence of the Spirit impacts the way we think about our future. So look at verse 11. Now, 11 is an incredibly loaded verse. There's so much rich Trinitarian theology here, and we do not have time to, to talk about that, but I hope you notice all three persons of the Trinity here in this verse. But look at what it says. What it, look at what it says for those of us who are followers of Jesus. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, the point is this. That for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that one day we're going to die. But the promise is that after we die, that one day God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is going to raise us from the dead. Listen, listen to how Pastor James Boyce once put it. He says, the verse is speaking about a future resurrection. 
And it is regarding it as certain for all who are in Christ. Indeed, it could hardly be stated with greater certainty. For in developing the point the apostle brings in each member of the Trinity, as if to say that our final resurrection is as certain as God himself. Now it is. Now what will it be like? Well, let's look at how the Bible ends. Revelation chapter 21 paints a beautiful picture of what this uh, resurrection in the new heavens and new earth will be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And you see, the true follower of Jesus with the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, dwelling in them, taking up residence in them, they know that this is true. They know that this is their future. And they know that it is certain because Jesus has secured it. And they're not living here on this earth trying to, to do enough, do enough good things to hope that, that their good will outweigh their bad and that, so that God feels paid off by them enough that they can get in. Instead, they realize that God gives life without payment. Why? To us, because Jesus has already paid it for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. You see, friends, this passage, in the middle of this incredible chapter on assurance and security, no condemnation, no separation, it's calling us to look at our own hearts and see, is this us? Is this us? See, look again at verses 9, 10, and 11. They're loaded with these implicit questions. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, because it might not. If Christ is in you, because he might not be. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So how do you do that? How do you evaluate your heart? You don't look merely at your religious involvement. You don't look at how often you're here. You don't look out even at even if you're here, you actually fill out the little card at the bottom of the sermon notes and pass it in every week. You don't even look at, okay, do, can, I say, can I speak the right language and say that I know the right catechisms and confessions and theological beliefs which are true and beautiful and wonderful. You don't even look at your own conduct and see, Am I better than I am bad? Am I better than those bad people? What Paul is telling us, friends, is to do self-evaluation and look at our mindset. There's a quote from, old quote from Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, that he once said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What he means by religion is what you worship who you are at the core of who you are, what you really believe about God, what you really trust about God, is what you do whenever you're all alone. So how do you evaluate your heart? 
Where does your mind most most naturally go when there's nothing else to distract it? What, What preoccupies you? If you're honest, what engrosses you the most? What do you dream about? What do you fantasize about? What do you long for? What has captured your imagination? You see, what do you love? Who do you ultimately love? See, for some of us, what this means is that after taking an honest, serious evaluation of our own hearts, it means that we need to go to Jesus. We need to go to Jesus by faith for the first time. And we need to say, yeah, I've, I've been trusting in my religious performance and involvement for too long, not, not any longer. I've come, I've come for the real thing now. I've come for the real thing. I've come for Jesus. I've come for the, his life, his death, his resurrection. I'm coming with nothing to, not anything to bargain with. I'm just coming. Please, I need grace. I want to be forgiven. I want to be accepted. For some of us, it means, I, God, I'm sorry. I've been trusting in my knowledge of the Bible, my knowledge of theological beliefs, thinking I know the right things, and that maybe that'll just be enough. But the reality is, I don't sense this spirit that he's talking about and that what the Apostle Paul is writing about. And so, God, I, I need the real thing. I need Jesus, and I need the spirit in my life. That some of us need to say, God, I've been trusting in my conduct, and that I've kept my nose clean, and I've been a good little boy and a good little girl, and I've done the right things. But yet I still, I fall asleep every night wondering, thinking with this aching feeling that it has not been enough. And I don't know. And so God, I'm coming. Jesus, I want the real thing. I want your life, your death, your resurrection. I want to build a trust that no condemnation is true for me and that no separation lies in my future. But for others of us, we know that we belong to Jesus. We know that that sense of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But if we're honest, lately our hearts and minds have not been stirred with love and affection and excitement for God like it once was. And we miss that. Maybe we've been missing it for months, maybe for years, maybe for decades, but we miss it. And what I want to say, friends, is that missing it is probably a good sign. Missing it is probably a good sign. But missing it probably also means we need to lose something. We need to offload something. Last quote from Henry Skugel. He wrote hundreds of years ago, wrote a famous book uh, that you've probably never heard about. Uh, But if you're a pastor, you've heard about it. It's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And there's a great quote that says, The love of the world and the love of God are like the scales of a balance. As the one falleth, the other doth rise. Can't love them both. Can't be excited about them both. Can't give our lives to both. So some of us need to lose something. We need to offload some things because our minds and our hearts will not be preoccupied with Jesus, his love for us, his love for the world, and his invitation to join his kingdom mission if our lives are overcrowded and overloaded. And some of us need to start offloading things. Start offloading things from our schedule. Start offloading things from our minds, from our hearts, so that if the scales are like this, they begin to go like this. They begin to become realigned. And that's what the Apostle Paul's telling us here. He's got so many more great things to tell us in Romans 8, and I can't wait for next week's sermon. It's going to be, the text is incredible, I can't mess it up. But what Paul tells us is, what Paul tells us is, 
What good is that? What good is that? If there are people who are of the flesh and there are those who are of the spirit and you and are of the flesh, he says, come to Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, God, we love you. And your word tells us that we only love you because you first loved us. In so many ways, there's really nothing to do in response to this text except come to Christ. Except come to Christ. Come to Christ for the first time, saying, please forgive me. Wash away my sins. Give me the Holy Spirit. Make me alive. Or to come to Christ again and say, God, I, oh, I miss... I miss the joy of my salvation. I miss the excitement. I miss, I miss, I miss, I miss what it used to be like. And I want it to be there again. And Father, show me. Show me how my life is overcrowded. Show me how things are overloaded. Make me alive. Make me alive to you. Make me alive to the things, to your word, to the things of the Spirit. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.